0: If you would open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, we'll start reading in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Pray with me, if you would. Father, we are eager to hear from your word, we pray that you would use this time to instruct us as a body of believers who have come together to honor you first and foremost, and to learn what it is you have for us and what you've revealed to us through your son Jesus and through the words given to us by your holy apostles. I pray that you would strengthen us through this time, and that we would take this as a blessing, as a gift from you. And she would grant each one of us the patience, the fortitude, and the will to listen. And that we would have the humility to yield in obedience to what you have for us. Father, we do praise you and we trust you. We glorify you as the God who can work in spite of distractions and inadequacies, human and technological I pray that you would encourage us all as a result of today and that you would receive it as an offering to you, a pleasing aroma before your throne. It's in the name of your Son we pray. Amen. I want to say a few words by way of introduction, as is my habit in most cases. Um, We have concluded our study of 1 Peter. And that means that we follow along in our practice typically of doing something of a standalone or a, a few different sermons on different topics that are timely in between our longer series. If you want some bonus content, the next book that we are going through, Lord willing, will be in fact Second Peter. And after that, I'm going to make a foray into one of the major prophets, probably Jeremiah And as a bonus, lamentations, since they should be taken as a unity. And then after that, Lord willing, who knows how many years that will take? Um, No, prophets go faster than epistles. But after that, my prayer is that we would be ready for the Gospel of John, Um, perhaps the most intimidating book for any preacher to go through. So uh, that's the plan, and the plane will likely change so write that in pencil in between the longer books of the bible we we have this practice of doing kind of a standalone series different timely even topical types of things to address that are of uh, particular concern for us as a church or applicability so why are we here in matthew then what is the rationale for this sermon this is the first of a two part series that i am calling life together And I'm trying to do many things at once, not least of which is just a basic exposition of the text that we find ourselves in. But the main story of how this series came about, the vision for this series, is that we were together, some of us in this church, who focus on communication and trying to get many of you involved in the different things that we do. And the question was circulating, well, we really need to help people understand what all of these things are for and why they exist in the first place. And while it wasn't explicit in that meeting, I thought afterwards, you know, it would make sense to preach uh, uh, at least a few sermons by way of instruction to help us understand as a church why we do what we do. One of the questions in the membership interview, do you have any questions about why we do what we do? But just take this as a service to you that I'm trying to explain why we do it. We do a lot of things as a church that are in addition to the Sunday morning gathering. We call them many different things, uh, but if you were to lump them all together, a phrase that's been thrown around to the, to explain them would be our transformational ministries. Uh, ministries that help us in some way, one way or another, become more like Jesus that we ourselves would transform. So why do we have growth groups? Why do we have discipleship groups? Why do we encourage one-to-one Bible reading, why do we encourage you to get together with brothers and sisters and do these types of things in addition to the Sunday morning gathering? They're not obligatory. You don't sign any contract when you become a member here that you'll do any of those things except agreeing to be a part of our fellowship on Sunday morning. But why do we do that? Why do we put so much energy and why do we come close to begging you to be a part of some of these things? There's a few different ways of answering that. For me, they're all rooted in the same thing. These these different answers. Number one, this is the kind of thing that we need to do in order to be obedient to Scripture. There are a lot of commands in Scripture that we find, especially in the New Testament, that are clear about the type of life we're supposed to live with one another. And these are the kinds of things we can do in order to be obedient. It's primarily an obedience issue. Number two, these are the things that are that we are working together to do as a church to help each other love in the ways that we ought. We'll see that play out in a big way in this message. The central commands of loving the Lord and loving one another. How do we love each other? Did I just send you a card on your birthday? As Christians, there's an explicit scriptural answer to that. How do we love each other? And number three, how, this is how we are able to keep our church covenant together. In your bulletin, you will see that stuffed in there, if you got one, is a copy of our church covenant with the scripture references taken out so that it would all fit on one page. Um, we're covering the two first sections this week. We're not going line by line. I'm coming from the text to show you why these are there And next week we'll cover the final two sections of the covenant from Deuteronomy 6. So that's the plan. That's the introduction and rationale for this message. And the first thing I want to say to you from this passage of Scripture, picking it up in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 34, is this. Understanding does not equal obedience. Understanding does not equal obedience. Verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. You see them huddling up, maybe, in a corner somewhere in the temple complex. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Whenever we reproach the a text of Scripture that is very familiar to us, we run the risk of equating understanding with obedience. It's very easy to do. You may very well have heard this passage of Scripture or a summary of it it, hundreds, even thousands of times. You might even have it memorized. It is very unlikely then that I'm going to say to you something this morning that you've never heard about these two commandments or their interrelatedness. But it is very easy to think that understanding means mastery. And that is very unhealthy. Just think about it this way if love does no wrong to one's neighbor, how much do we lack obedience then? In fact, what we think we know about these commands, what we think we know about the love of God and the love of other people might indict us further just like it does with the Pharisees. Aside from lawyer jokes and general comments about who the Pharisees were, these two verses, verses 34 and 35, are usually just flown past to get to the meat of the text. But you've come to expect something much different than a few passing comments. We should linger as much as we can, as much as time will allow. The real meaning of lawyer in this text isn't someone who would uh, litigate like we know today, you know, a, a personal injury lawyer or something like that. This was an expert in the law of Moses. And so when there was a disagreement between two people that had something to do with the law of Moses, these guys would come to play and try to mediate between two parties, interfacing particularly the law of Moses. They knew it very, very well. I want you to look then at the beginning of the next section. We know how this account goes. If you're reading the ESV, they insert a a different heading there. But the, the, the story just continues. There's really no break in time between the end of verse 40 and the beginning of verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. And then skip down to verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. They ask Jesus a question. They kind of elect, you know, maybe by a, a passive, aggressive process. Well, you go ask him a question. This lawyer brave enough to go and ask Jesus a question. And he answers well. But then they huddle up again. Try to ask Him another question. And really, the only thing that changes in their hearts is that they're unwilling to ask Him any more questions. They don't obey. They don't yield to His wisdom. Do they may, could they maybe take stock for a second and think maybe we've discounted this guy too quickly since he is, without any warning, able to summarize accurately and interpret all the law and the prophets? in one short answer. They agree with what Jesus says. They understand that what He said is true, but they fail so miserably at obeying it. Even rejecting the incarnation of love Himself who is standing in front of them. And what about us? You can have a really good understanding of love God, love people. I mean, this, this is even used almost as a critique of someone. Like, this happened a lot in a seminary context. You'd be debating some some finer points of theology and then the, the, the uh, sanctimonious people would come in and say, well, just love God, love people. You're being too complicated. You're just complicating things. Just love God, love people. We can think that we walk in a, a high awareness of what these two commands are and how they relate together. Don't do this or that. Don't focus on this. Don't get caught up in these controversies. Just love God and love people. But the simplicity of the command underscores, however, just how difficult it is to obey. We in our sinful nature can't even get these right. So understand what I'm doing with these verses and why. As I said, you have a copy of our church covenant. These two messages together are meant to do many things at once. But it's not just out there as some new initiative, some random thought I had one you know one late night while I was trying to think of what to preach before between now and the start of the series in Second Peter. To put it bluntly, we don't want to be like the Pharisees. I've joked often that we could start a line of t-shirts and sell sell a, a brand as a church. Don't be like Esau. Don't be like Cain. Don't be like the Pharisees, right? I think it's a good idea. But we don't want to be like the Pharisees. We don't want to be like the Sadducees who had a great understanding of these commandments and could summarize and even affirm, "Yes, Jesus, you're true. You did you said it right. Good answer." To the degree like, "Well, I'm not going to ask him any more questions and not obey." In short, we want to help each other be more faithful in our obedience. That's what life together is. That's why we need each other as the body of Christ. It's not about having some feeling of community or belonging or all these different intangible aspects of a community. Things that are great and fine and good in their own right. But that's not the main point. The main point is to please the Lord and walk in higher levels of obedience and more faithfulness to be fully pleasing to Him. So let's look at the great and first commandment. Verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. There are a few observations we can make about this in our exegesis, but I want to give you a most important observation. I want to be very clear on this. He says, the Lord your God. What this indicates in using God's covenantal name, or at least alluding to it, is that God is the one who makes the move first. He's the one, through His grace, who creates this relationship between Himself and His people and enables His people to know how to obey and gives them the resources to obey and provides provision for them to deal with their disobedience through sacrifice. Even in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. We are grace-responsive then. It is God's first initiative to move towards His people. He has caused us to be His people. He has created this relationship with us. He's done all these things to make obedience to these commands possible. In short, He has loved us first in order that we may keep these commandments. He doesn't just approach us in a vacuum coming to us with His divine power and threats of condemnation. You better love Me and render to Me all that is due My name. He loves us first, and by that love gives us everything we need for life and godliness, enabling us to obey. You must keep that with you. That is a very important observation in this text. It's right there in the grammar. The Lord your God... Your God, He has done this for you that you may obey. So everything that we say this morning about obedience and walking in more faithfulness, more obedience, this is not me trying to tell you, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Get it together, you dirty, rotten sinner. This is me telling you, God has given this to you. If you're looking at the sermon notes, you know we're going to end with seven points to practical ways to enter our inheritance. This is something God has made it possible for you to do. And under the New Covenant, He's done this by His Spirit. You know, that was the only problem with the Old Covenant, really. Is that it didn't have any power to change the human heart. So in the New Covenant, the promise of the New Covenant, if you read closely in Jeremiah chapter 31, He will write His law on our hearts. He promises to change us in such a way that we will know the Lord and obey him intuitively from the heart. This is the promise of the new covenant. This is, this is the treasure that we have as his new covenant people, that we we have the resources now to obey and to walk in faithfulness to him. You might say, I would love to love that way, but I feel so inadequate. Fear not. The love of God comes from God. The love that you need towards God and towards neighbor is a love poured into your hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans 5. But I don't have the Holy Spirit, you might say. Or I don't have enough of the Holy Spirit, clearly. I don't have enough of His influence in my life to love God the way I ought, let alone others then hear the words of Jesus. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So that's just it. Ask for the Holy Spirit and He will give it pretty much. But if that were a two-way conversation between you and the Lord, saying, Lord, please give me, grant me more the influence of the Holy Spirit in my life that I may Obey more faithfully. He would say, okay, you want the Holy Spirit? Go to the Lord Jesus. For He whom God has sent utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. You might say again, but how do I go to the Lord Jesus? Well, turn from your sins and believe in Him. All of it comes from Him. Everything you need for life and godliness, right this this is me already getting ready and excited for the second Peter series, second Peter one verse three has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given it to you, believer it's yours already, and as we 'll see at the end we're we're preparing to enter our inheritance even now, so that's the most important observation of the exegesis that God enables His people to obey this. You're not trying to find within your heart the resources to love this way. Because we're going to say some very significant things about what it actually means to love God and love neighbor. And as you hear them, you'll either elevate yourself in pride and think that you're doing a great job, or you'll be honest with yourself and realize how miserably we all fail. And in order for that to not become a massive discouragement for those of us who are honest, you've got to know that God is the one who provides you with what you need to be obedient. So the question itself, let's look at the question. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? This was apparently a common question in Jesus' day. There were many rabbis who proposed different answers to this very question. Basically, there was a recognition of this. Like, look, (laughs) there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament. So uh, let's talk about this. Which ones do we think are the most important? Like, none of none of us are going to keep the law perfectly. So if we're going to we're going to rank them in importance, if we're going to establish a hierarchy, uh, which which is the big one? Right? What what do we really need to focus on? How do we summarize the law? And it was common, even in Jesus' day, to divide the law up into different categories. D.A. Carson says that the, the distinguishing characteristics of great versus small, or light versus heavy, that these divisions were common in Jesus' day. And even Jesus Himself. If you go to the next chapter in Matthew, verse 20, chapter 23, verse 23, He says, uh, you have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith, or faithfulness, depending on how you translate it so and apparently, in Jesus' day, there was a diversity of opinion of how to answer this question. It was It was a debate, it was a hotly debated issue between many of the different leaders, the great rabbis of the time. So the lawyer is asking him a question not not like a question on an arithmetic exam, but on a question designed to get him crossways of some of the leaders just like every other question they asked him should we pay taxes to caesar or not it's a trap question right it's because no matter what he says right he's going to get crossways with somebody and so he's asking him a question designed to create trouble to trap him in his words and jesus answers so well that he doesn't fall for the trap and he doesn't answer by giving a different question he he actually answers the question which is kind of rare for jesus honestly but he does and and he answers well so He's referring, we know this, hopefully, I've already alluded to this, the Old Testament reference is, of course, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Jesus modifies it slightly. We'll get to Deuteronomy 6 next week as we talk about the two families, how the family of God is related to our families, and how that further brings out the reality of life together. But that, I won't get ahead of myself. But just know that what Jesus is doing here is He's going to one of the texts that a lot of people in Jesus' day would have been thinking about as an option for an answer to this question. Which is the greatest commandment of the law? A lot of people have this passage circled as a real candidate. Deuteronomy 6, the Shammah, as it is called. And the central command, the central imperative is love the Lord. Love the Lord. What is love? Isn't it amazing that these most basic questions that we can ask, the world can't really offer any satisfying answers to? What is love? What is truth? What is right and wrong? What is beauty? The answers they offer to questions like this are either utterly vague... Like it's just a matter of opinion. Or, they're utterly depressing. There is no truth. There is no love. It's just chemicals in your head. It's an illusion. In the Bible, we don't have necessarily what we would want as a proper definition of love. Rather, we are told what God does in His love. And we're told what a person does when they genuinely love. I'm going to offer you a brief theological definition of biblical love. It has three components. One, a deeply resolved commitment to the highest good of another. Number two, true delight to seek their highest good. So you got to commit yourself to seek their good, but you can't be grumpy about it. You have to like that you are applying yourself to seeking their good. And then thirdly, an unselfish desire for... Some type of closeness or unity or relationship. Because you can do those two things and not know anything about the other person. Or them not know anything about you. So before we say anything else, it's worth asking and pondering, do you love the Lord? Do you really love Him? Just using this definition, I think it's richly biblical. I won't argue for it at each point. If you want to? You can come talk to me later. But here are the questions: To answer the question, do you really love the Lord? Are you committed to the Lord's highest good? To ask it another way, are you utterly committed to pleasing Him? Number two, are you finding your delight in seeking the Lord's highest good? Is it your highest joy to please the Lord? Do you desire closeness, unity, and relationship with the Lord? Young people, this is what it means to love the Lord. Older people, this is what it means to love the Lord. All of us, we need to ask the serious questions. We need to ask the hard questions like this. And do not get discouraged. If you see a lack of love for the Lord in your heart, but that lack bothers you, you can be encouraged because the source of love, the origin of love, the Spirit Himself is at work. It doesn't bother people who do not have the Spirit that they don't love the Lord like they ought to. Ask. And He will give. And He says that we're to do this. We're to resolve ourselves to seek the Lord's highest good. We're, we're to take all our delight in that highest goal of seeking His highest good. And, and we're to desire this closeness, some reciprocity, relationship with Him as we love Him in this way. And He says, "...with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind." Just a brief comment on those three different words. This is how D.A. Carson puts it in his commentary on Matthew. From the viewpoint of biblical anthropology, heart, soul, and mind are not mutually exclusive, but overlapping categories. Together, demanding our love for God to come from our whole person, every faculty and capacity. Understand what Jesus is saying and His interpretation of Deuteronomy 6. It's not just love the Lord with everything you are. That's super vague and unhelpful. I'm not even sure grammatically what that means. How can I love the Lord with my toe? Rather, and more clearly, I think he's saying this, apply the whole self to the love of God. All spiritual, all emotional, all physical and mental resources are to be fixed on the one all-consuming goal of loving the Lord your God. Does that sound exhausting? It does to me. But you can just refer back to the most important observation that we saw. This is enabled for you by God's grace. The Spirit Himself loves God like this. You know that. And He is working to conform you to the image of His Son so that you would love God like the Son does. Ask. We can rejoice because He's done this. He has enabled. This is your inheritance. The love of God like this is your inheritance. And there are many substitutes for the love of God. We'll go through these quickly. I had a lot to say underneath, but I'm trying to be conscious of the time. There are many substitutes for for the love, the genuine love of God. Doctrinal precision is a very insidious substitute for the genuine love of God. We know this is a danger. Head knowledge does not equal heart posture. This is this was the problem with the church at Ephesus in when you read the account in the Revelation to John chapter 2. They had their theology right, but they had forsaken their first love. On the last day, though it is important for us to know the truth, the central question will not be, how well did you understand? It will be, how well did you love? The second insidious or idolatrous substitute for the love of God is religious activity. We can be like Martha so easily. I call myself, and some of you lovingly, church stuff junkies. We just love all the books, all the conferences, everything, but activity, service does not equal love of God. We can be like Martha and just be distracted by so much serving that that Jesus is right there and we, we miss Him. Number three, we can think that the esteem of the believing community is the love of God. This is a huge trap, especially if you grew up in a a place and in a community where good works are praised. That feels so good. And we can switch it in our hearts that that feeling of goodness by being respected for doing the right thing is the love of God. We can also think that religious experience is the love of God, but it's not. The author of Hebrews says this, or it is impossible, in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the world to come and the powers of the age to come, and have then fallen away to restore them again to repentance. You can have all those religious experiences and not know the love of God. And lastly, it is not the love of God to simply be moved inwardly we know this I can be moved to tears by poetry about a fictional character sorry but I've never wanted to seek that fictional character's highest good and devote all of my whole being to that fictional character It's just apples and oranges your emotions in response even to truths about the gospel and words from scripture does not equal the love of God and so, because we ought to love the love God this way, love the Lord our God this way, we make promises. If you want to look along with a copy of the church covenant in your bulletin, you can. Here are the promises that we make in order to help each other love the Lord our God. We will love the Lord our God as Father, Son, and Spirit, the only God with all our hearts, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, glorifying Him in everything, rejecting pride, and idols, We will love the Lord our God by submitting to Jesus Christ alone as Lord of all things and our lives, forsaking all others for Him as the source of our joy and hope. We will love the Lord our God by walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, striving for holiness in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We will love the Lord our God by renewing our minds by the Holy Spirit to conform to, defend, and hold fast to God's Word, rejecting teachings that are contrary to it. On the surface, who could argue with those? These are promises that we are saying, in short, summarize what it means to love the Lord our God. But if these promises are so important, so what? Talk is cheap. We know this. And John tells us little children, let us love. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So not only do we make promises, this is how this is all connected together. We hold each other accountable to these promises. If it matters so much that we love the Lord our God, then our role towards each other is to make sure to provide what help we can to enable each other to love the Lord our God in these ways. Accountability. There are a lot of unpopular words. And when this word is used to talk about other people, like our leaders or the governing officials, then it's really popular. But when the Word is turned around and pointed at the self, it's not that popular. Especially not up here in a place like North Idaho. We want to be kings in our castles and for no one to tell us what to do. And this would be funny, this idea of not wanting to make promises and not go through with Voluntary submission to accountability if this were not the very thing that is a big chunk of the conversations I have with people who leave in a huff over this very issue. We don't want to be held accountable. Not to promises like this. Understand this. Your promise and commitment to keep these promises means nothing. Nothing at all. Unless you willingly bind yourself to some kind of tangible accountability with teeth. you understand what I'm saying? Think of an example of marriage. Husband and wife, or soon to be husband and wife, soon to be pronounced husband and wife, they stand up there and they give these grand promises in the presence of God and of many witnesses. But if in their heart they mean something like this, I'm going to make all these problem, uh, promises, but then I'm going to insulate myself and exalt myself and isolate myself from all accountability so that I can do whatever I want and there are no consequences. And what the heck were those promises? They're nothing, they're cheap talk. The point is this accountability is personalized. This is why it is so unwelcome in so many cases. As long as you have chapter and verse as you talk to another believer, you're generally okay. But then when it is personalized to your case, then we can get into trouble. Let's take one example from the promises I just read. Rejecting pride and idols. Look, there's nothing wrong with your car or your house or your career or your toys. Or your hobbies, or your games. But we know they can be idols. So, what does it mean to make the promise, I will personally reject idols in my life, if we're not opening ourselves up to another brother or sister to be close enough to us to see, hey, this might be an idol for you, and to hear it, and to heed it, and to listen? It's a meaningless promise unless we invite that level of accountability. And He gives us, so that, that is all under the heading of the Great and First Commandment. We want to love God. Who could argue in a church, like if you're showing up to a church service, you can say, of course, that's the central command. Love God. But let's hold each other accountable to love God. That's why we have these ministries where we open our lives up to each other. We'll get to the practicality of that at the end. The second similar commandment. Remember, again, i got to bring this in again. All from grace. Even the will to invite accountability into your life. That you would hold fast to these promises and obey in these ways is a grace from God. So if you lack, if you're looking in your heart and you lack, I don't want accountability. Ask for it. The second similar commandment. Verse 39, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the second. They didn't ask for two, but it is very often the case that with Jesus we get more than we ask for. We'll see that more... In a bit, he says the second is like it. There's so much to say underneath this and the connectivity between the first commandment and the second commandment. You could just read most of 1 John to see that point, but I'll leave that to you as your homework. It's almost as if, as if, right, Jesus knows the sinful inclinations of the heart. Of course He does. We talked about idolatrous substitutes for the love of God. and I left this one off because it's not even a substitute. It's just the complete opposite of the love of God. If you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar. You can't do that. It's nonsense is the point of 1 John. What Jesus is saying in such a clear way is that if you keep the first commandment as given you will also be one who keeps the second commandment. You can't separate them at all. It is like it. it There is a likeness between these commands. That's what he's saying. He says love. The same definition of love. Same type of word used here. So we're supposed to have that, that posture, towards our neighbor. Those three components are the same. A deeply resolved commitment to the highest good of another. A true delight in seeking their highest good. And an unselfish desire for closeness or unity or relationship. So we'll ask those same three questions. Do you have a deeply resolved commitment to the good of one another? Do you take delight in the highest good of one another? Do you have an unselfish desire for peace and unity with one another? Hard questions. And again, we can look inside and and if you're honest, you see a, a serious lack of faithfulness in these areas. But God gives more grace. Let that bother you and drive you to petition the Lord for more of the spiritual strength you need in order to be obedient. Love your neighbor. Who is my neighbor? You could insert a whole sermon on, this, uh, on the parable of the Good Samaritan right here, but just a few observations on this. We are limited beings, and so we can't love everyone in the world this way. I, I, would, I would say, probably very confidently, you can't even love everyone in this church this way. We max out this room at about uh, 133 or so. That's if everyone sits in a chair and your purse doesn't have a chair. You can't love 133 people this way. Not at the same time. But the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us this. It's who God has providentially aligned to come across your path who needs help, who needs encouragement, who needs grace into their lives. Your closest neighbor is, of course, your family. We'll talk about that next week. But as members of this church, we have committed ourselves to be each other's neighbor in a deeper sense than the rest of the world. So, we must apply this to our church family. We're to love one another this way. He says, as yourself. There is some clear distinction here. We can talk a long time about this. He says, we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's intentionally different. He's quoting Leviticus here. But we're never commanded to love our neighbor with all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our minds. God must have the prime place in your hearts. You must worship Him alone. Not become codependent with another person that you're just trying to love and make an idol in your life. That can't happen. But, as you love yourself, is pretty high up there. Pretty close. Because we, we like ourselves a lot. I don't think actually he's saying, though, to the same degree... Right, because you can maybe loathe yourself and like, well, I guess I'm doing okay because I loathe everyone else. I don't think that's what he's saying. He is saying that we're 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 to fall into the same biblical definition of love that you have placed your good in the good of another. Right? The the, the technical term for this, if you if you're okay with big words, I know that, that this can be a problem. Uh, hypothecation. That instead of seeing your good as just how you're benefiting and how you're doing and the good things that are happening to you, you've identified, you've taken your good and placed it on someone else. That when they do good, you count that as yours. Love them as yourself, as if they are you. That's that's the idea. We see this throughout the Bible. As though prisoners with them, right? We saw this in Hebrews chapter 13, if you can remember back that far. This is what Jesus did. He identified His good in our good. He divested Himself of all of His power and privilege for our good. Because, not because out, out of a sense of sacrifice, no, i got to do it. It's because He found His joy, His good, in the good of another, in us. That's what we're to do. And there are, as well, insidious substitutes for the love of neighbor. I'll go through these very quickly. But if you've got your clique, you know what I'm talking about. If you've got your clique, uh, that's not love of neighbor. Uh, Parochialism, a big word, but if you only love those who are in your family or in your sphere of influence, or if you're a Texan and you only love Texans, or if you're a North Idahoan and you only love native North Idahoans, that's parochialism. That's not love of neighbor. Tribalism. You love the people that are just like you or fit in your theological or political tribe. That's not love of neighbor. Love of self. Some of us, I would say all of us, struggle with this, that really the love that we feel towards other people is because we like what we see in the mirror. Not in a physical sense, but we like ourselves so much that when we can see ourselves in another person, we say, oh, I like that. We really just are loving ourselves. Having come from the South, I also need to say that syrupy southern sweetness is not love of neighbor. Those of you who are from the South know what I'm talking about. Also, the Messiah complex is not love of neighbor. What you need is me doing these things for you. Right? That's not love of neighbor. That's not even how Jesus had his heart posture towards us. So there's a lot to say underneath all of those. We've got to move on. So we make promises... And we pursue accountability in order to keep these promises to love one another. It is so important because if you do not love your neighbor the way that God is commanding, it calls into question whether or not you are genuinely loving God or at least exposes the quality of your love for God. The second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So here are the promises. We will love one another even as we love ourselves by using All that God has given us, not only for our own needs, but also for the needs of others. We will love one another by striving for unity among the members of this church, by counting others more significant than ourselves, and praying for one another. We will love one another by encouraging, exhorting, and rejoicing with one another, bearing one another's burdens, and confessing our sins to one another. We will love one another by having fellowship with one another, meeting together regularly, taking part in the preaching of God's word, baptism in the Lord's Supper, and practicing hospitality. We talk a lot about the commands, uh, the one another commands from Scripture. All of those that I just read to you are from one of the or more of the one another commands in Scripture. But we need accountability. We can promise that all day long, but but without meaningful commitment, voluntary submission to accountability, promises like that are meaningless. So what do we do as a church to make sure we obey Jesus together? That's the point. But here's how we do that. It is meaningless. Just a few comments before, before we get to the practicality of it. I know we're running short on time. We will talk about verse 40 before we get there. You can make the one another commands mean anything you want. This isn't theoretical for me. This is very personal and painful to think about. Some people, when they read the one another commands of Scripture, they think, oh, my favorite Christian. Or the Christians that are just like me or think the same way that I do. Rarely ever do we have this broad perspective of those that the Lord has put in my path that I've committed to keep these promises with. We need the accountability of brother and sister as we seek to love one another. So that's the theological groundwork for why we do what we do. And we'll we'll get to the practicality of it, but I do want to make a few comments about verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I call this a breathtaking bonus statement. We always get more from Jesus than we ask. And this is no exception. They only asked Him what is the great commandment of the law. They didn't ask Him what... Two laws summarize both the law and the prophets. But that's what Jesus gives us. There is so much joy in the simplicity of this statement. I want you to understand this. Consider the heavy burdens of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Scribes, and the Essenes, and all of the law and the fence around the law that they were giving the people to try and make sure that we didn't disobey. And Jesus says, all of the law and the prophets hang or hinge on these two commands. Paul says this in Romans 13, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Just get this right. Love does no wrong to one's neighbor. When you love God, all becomes obedience and worship. All the law and the prophets. Look, the Bible is a big book. And there are intricacies and curiosities that keep even the most astute students of the ancient languages guessing and thinking and drilling deeper and deeper. But the core, the heartbeat of it all is found all the way back in this most central exhortation this most central command and summons, love the Lord, love one another. So, that is why we do what we do. Because these things matter. We want to please the Lord. We want to grow in our ability to love. And we want to increase the quality of our love. And we want to hold each other accountable to obey the Lord Jesus. So I'm encouraging you now... To enter your inheritance. Because of the new covenant, if you are in Christ, this type of obedience isn't just some way out there level of love that you'll have to work on and attain to after years and years and years and years of applying yourself. This is your birthright because it is yours by the Spirit who has been poured into your hearts in the same way that the promised land was already secured for the people by God as they were right there on the other side of the Jordan ready to enter their inheritance, this is what I want for you. This type of love for the Lord and for neighbor is your inheritance. We're not trying to be a legalistic or pietistic place. We're trying to help you do the things and walk in the ways that God has already prepared for you beforehand. This is His grace towards you. And it is better. It is life to the full. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So we are helping each other, even now, enter our inheritance of obedience and love to the Lord Jesus. As sons and daughters of God, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself is not just something only a few of us can do. It is something God has promised to give you. And He has already given it to you. Again, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You can see how excited I am for Second Peter. So, If we want to hear and to obey and not just hear and understand, if we want to obey in deed and not just in word and talk, how do we grow in our obedience? What tools and means have we been given to grow in the love of God and neighbor? How can we begin to take more and more ownership of these things that are already ours? How do we as a church help each other conform to the image of Christ? How do we help each other be more like our Lord? Number one, by embracing the incredibly mundane. Everything I'm talking about, this type of accountability that we commit to, to help each other love God and love one another more faithfully is incredibly mundane. It often looks like sitting across a coffee shop table from another person asking them how they're doing and saying one or two encouraging things to them to help them continue on on this pilgrim way practically the description of what we do is two three five men or women meet together on a semi-regular basis once every week or once every two weeks for accountability how is your walk with the lord how are you in your consumption of his word in your prayer in your leading of your family in your serving your children do you have any sin that needs to be confessed? Is there any way we can help you in your fight against sin? And are there any burdens that we can bear for you? It's just getting together and embracing the incredibly mundane as we help each other along this program way. Number two, we embrace vulnerability. Vulnerability is not a popular word. It's even less, a pro- less popular a practice. Because we like to have a strong, put-together exterior. In order for love to be real, though, we have to open ourselves up to other people to be truly known and to have our needs be known and to have our weaknesses. How can we bear one another's burdens if we don't know what they are? To willingly expose yourself is the starting place for genuine love between brothers and sisters. Number three, we embrace accountability. As we've said all this message, with we can make these promises, but until we voluntarily submit ourselves to accountability with teeth, they mean nothing. And it goes both ways. It's not just submitting ourselves and Letting other people hold us accountable. It's being willing to hold other people accountable to provide that context for another brother or sister in Christ to make these promises mean something. Number four, we embrace the manageable. (laughs) You can't do this with a hundred people, let alone every Christian everywhere in the world. But you can love your neighbor. And you can hold accountable... Two, three, four, five brothers or sisters in Christ. A few families. Just a handful of people. You can do that. That is manageable. We also do this, number five, by embracing the new. This type of love, this type of accountability, this community context of increasing our obedience to the Lord is something that many, many Christians do not have. Many people have been Christians for a long, long time and have been able to skirt by, skate by, whatever analogy you would use, and have their whole Christian life have nothing like this. And it's not because necessarily leaders haven't tried, though that is true as well. It's because you can jump in and hide. It is so easy, even in a small room like this. But we embrace the new because as we receive new people, this is the type of church we're trying to be. For obedience matters. Adherence to the commands of our Lord and His holy apostles matter. And as uncomfortable and as unpleasant to the flesh as these things are, we are are going to try to be obedient. Because judgment day is coming. And that which is not done from love and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to burn up and unless we provide a context like this for brothers and sisters, what will it be for them? There's, there's this popular social media post out there that compares the church between a, a cruise ship and a battleship. all you know, like, oh, people are treating the church like a cruise ship, just things to, uh, to suit their fancies, and, and no, we're a battleship, and it's all hands on deck, and we've we got to fight, and I, I, I hate that analogy. Because we're more like the USS Mercy. There is a job for everyone, but we receive people who need help and need accountability and need growth. We're a hospital. Are we acting like it? Number six, we embrace sacrifice. This isn't comfortable. And it will mean sacrificing a lot. And for you, it might mean sacrificing the facade that you have been able to maintain your entire life. So what do you need to lay on the altar? Is it, is it a little more time? I know it's asking a lot even for you to be here and listen to long sermons every Sunday. But we can't hold each other accountable to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor as ourselves unless we make a few more sacrifices for the sake of obedience, for the sake of faithfulness to the Lord. I'll come back to the seventh way. There, there's one last one. Preview for the next week. What we're going to talk about is how the two families relate together. We each have our own families and those are important. How does that relate to us loving God and loving one another? How essentially how does the church relate to the nuclear family or the extended family? And how does that all relate to greater faithfulness and obedience to the Lord looking forward to it? And how and 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 how do that not putting them at odds at all, but how do they serve each other and how do their purposes relate? But I want to come back to the seventh way that we enter our inheritance we remember His provision. As I said in the beginning, love the Lord your God. God initiates. God provides His Spirit to enable us to walk in obedience in these ways. And what we have before us on a day like this in Celebration Sunday as we partake of the Lord's table is a representation of all God has done to make this kind of love and this kind of obedience possible. We receive Him. And as a result, we can obey. We can grow in our faithfulness to Him. He has prepared this table before us by sending His Son and slaughtering Him on the cross for us that we would receive even His very body and blood as the spiritual food we need providing us the energy, the zeal, and the wherewithal to love God and love our neighbor. That's what we remember in the supper. That is what we do in the supper as we acknowledge that we need Him. And without His grace, without His body and blood, we would not be able to obey. So let's pray as we conclude the message. Father, we are thankful for Your grace represented in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that we receive all that we need in order to walk in these ways. The grace we need for the love that we need and the grace we need for the accountability that we need as we make these promises to follow Your Son more faithfully. Please strengthen us as we go through the rest of this day and and receive Your grace in the Supper in receiving new members and in our fellowship meal. Pray these things in Jesus' name.